My name is Craig Haney. I'm uh, serving here as a uh, associate pastor, a pastor elder uh, in our uh, church governance. Um, our lead pastor, uh, Pastor Ben, is uh, on a well-deserved vacation. Um, he and Catherine, I think, are coming back from Kauai sometime today. So hopefully it's been a great trip for them. Um, if you're new to us, uh, we're part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. That once began uh, a little over 100 years ago as a movement, um, and its focus was um, that of missions, bringing people to the saving grace of Jesus, both here but very much overseas. And today, the CMA is represented, I think, more eight or tenfold greater uh, internationally than it is in the United States. But we uh, we are part of a an amazing legacy, and we attempt to continue that moving forward. You can learn more about us if you check us out on our website, uhchurch.org, and there's some links there to our national website. You can learn more about the Christian Missionary Alliance. As far as announcements today, I just wanted to highlight one thing. You notice in your bulletins that um, next week there's an open house lunch for Jeff and Renee Smith and their daughter Leyland's son Seamus. Those are our, our, uh, our missionary friends, if you will, that have come under in part uh, something of the wings of our church. We're getting to share in something of their mission's calling. They're being called to Zimbabwe, and the plane tickets are cut, and uh, they're nearly on the way and so next Sunday, they'll be coming. Jeff is going to be speaking. Um, but I would really encourage you, to, if you're able to, come to this luncheon for no other reason than to really encourage them. This is such, if you can imagine, a huge step. You know, they have been in vital parts of church ministries around the country here in the U.S., most re recently moving from Houston, but feeling this profound calling of God to go um, and start anew, start fresh in Zimbabwe. And it's just a huge endeavor. And... Uh, and with two kids in kind of a junior high and high school state, uh, it's a really, really big thing. So if you would consider coming, spend some time with them, just encourage them, let them know you're praying for them as, as they start out on this venture. And then, of course, we'll be walking with them uh, through the days to come and uh, periodically bringing both updates and hopefully those times when they're back uh, in the states that we'll have the opportunity to to hear and get some updates from them firsthand. So if you would uh, consider that, look forward to that next week. I think there's an opportunity to sign up for that, and that's going to be held at Greg and Kathleen's uh, best home. So then the other thing is just we try to do this uh, always, but uh, if you're visiting, there's these little hello cards in the racks in front of you there. It's just a real simple way that if you have a, a need that we might be able to help you with, prayer request questions about us. If you just fill one of those out and drop it in the offering later in the service, that'd be great. We will absolutely follow up with you. You can also send questions and everything to our kind of generic church email address, info at uhchurch.org. Um, and then there's also a link to that on the website as well. Um, let me uh, just take a minute then and uh, pray for our kids and release them to uh, Sunday school this morning. If you'll join me with that, appreciate it. Father, thank you for the blessing of um, the little people of uh, our lives, Lord. 
we just pray your blessings over them as they go uh, this morning and a blessing over the teachers that you'll be speaking through and help all of them understand the depth of your love for them, Lord. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. great to get to see you this morning. Um, I've uh, been praying and wondering who it is that God would bring today, and here you are. So I'm excited. It's awesome. I think you heard uh, from Holly, and first let me just say thanks to Samuel and Holly for doing just an awesome job this morning. Last minute, uh, the Hogans learned about uh, Mark's grandfather on Friday morning. Um, these guys had come to practice on Wednesday in preparation to lead us well today. And, and, uh, and then for them to get that, and, and Mark and Lauren and little Davey were on a plane, I think, by late in the day on Friday. So in that short order, Samuel, thanks for stepping up so well, and Holly, uh, just doing an awesome job. But here we come back to this topic. This is a two-part series that we began last week on humility. And it's a difficult subject because in and of itself, it's going to cause us to, force us to have to look at ourselves. And um, uh, But I, uh, reflecting overall, just uh, uh, looking at and wondering, Lord, so what are you about today? Um, and with these kind of recent changes, um, uh, so your, the intention of his, his uh, desire today, and, and uh, it's great to see you. Um, I want to kind of jump right in, uh, but first, uh, let's just pray over this time as well. Lord, thank you that you love us so greatly. You have provided for us so profoundly in Jesus. In and of itself, we're humbled, Lord. Thank you for your presence. Uh, Would you now speak to us? Would you use the words, uh, Lord, and translate them to the words that you have prepared for each one of our hearts today, Lord. Thank you in advance for the work that you're doing in us and through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot uh, that I want to cover today. This is, uh, you know, I do this uh, twice a year, uh, so I'm in my annual rotation. I call it my, uh, this is my lifetime fire hose series because I, I, I usually pour it on with great intensity, and uh, then you're relieved, and, you know, we come back and we'll do this again next year, probably. So this is, this is sermon number four in the Fire Hose series, and um, so needless to say, I've got a lot that I want to cover today, and then some special uh, things that will happen today as well. Um, but let me begin with a little bit of review for those of you that weren't here last week and give you a sense and hopefully catch us up so that we can kind of launch and pick up from there. So just in quick summary, everything begins and ends with God, right? Um, and I think that it is humility that understands that reality, the centrality of the person of God himself. You recall from last week, our, I kind of put forward what I thought was a uh, a biblically strong uh, definition for humility. And I'll read that again. The habitual frame of mind of a child of God is that of one who feels not only that he owes all his natural gifts, etc., to God, 
but he's been the object of undeserving redeeming love and who regards himself as being not his own, but God's in Christ. He cannot exalt himself, for he knows that he has nothing of himself. The humble mind is thus at the root of all other graces and virtues. That was written by W.L. Walker in 1915 for the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, but he grasps that well, and if you think about it, that was much of the words and the meaning of what we were singing in worship. Out of that, I pulled what I thought were three beginning kind of foundations of humility in our faith, um, and we looked at the scriptural support for those. But first, God is God and I'm not, right? And so just considering all the attributes of the incredibly transcendent nature of God, the creator of everything, including us, and then two, God can when I cannot. So he alone can make the way for a restored relationship with himself. You know, last week we faced the reality of our utterly helpless state, our inability to change our condition before him, really our self-inflicted death sentence from our own sin, a rebellion against God. But God comes in person, in Jesus, to make the way home to him, right? And then three, God's way is the only way. There's no workaround, and my option then is to accept this gift in Jesus uh, or to reject it. And so in my mind, as we embrace these three very beginning uh, foundations of humility, um, it results in a posture before God, a humble posture before him, And that, in turn, prepares us to receive from him. And so I think by its very nature, that posture of humility can't help but change our priorities. What's most important? And our concerns begin to shift to things like, what does God think? What does God care about? What is God's will? Who am I to him? What does he want from me? How has he and is he communicating to me? And then we looked at Philippians uh, chapter 2, kind of the seminal passage that we often look to on humility. And in those first four verses, we struggled with what Paul puts forward as kind of this if-then equation. You recall the language, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so that forced us to this question of, because Paul is describing our experience, Experience here with Jesus through the Spirit. Is our experience with Jesus through the Holy Spirit sufficiently powerful that it would motivate us to personally embrace that reality, to make that true in our lives as he described it, so that the same unity in the Spirit, the same love of Jesus, to remove our self-centeredness and actually consider the welfare of others over our own, that that would be a reality, a 
of our daily lives. You know, we kind of came to the challenging conclusion in part that for some we'd have to admit that we don't really see that to be true of our lives, or we may see progress towards that end. But I think for most of us, we'd have to own the fact that there's a what I would call a significant gap to God's goal in that regard. And so my kind of diagnosis and what I put forward to you then was that I think collectively we have, at some greater or lesser extent, a lordship issue. And it means in part that we've relegated Jesus to an accessory role in our lives as opposed to the lordship, the kingship that is due him alone. And so you'll recall at the end of last week's message, I put the ask out to all of you that over this last week that at some point you might prayerfully examine and, and, and grapple with before God your personal experience with Jesus through the Spirit. Um, and of that, what is there that would encourage you and motivate you to continue to pursue this humble position that would change the trajectory of your life? Um, what would motivate you to grow in humility and unity and love? And so I want to kind of pick it up from there and hopefully begin to get then practical as we grapple with what's next, what are the next steps, what would we do differently as a result of this? And I think the obvious start is to return back to Philippians 2, this time looking at verses 5 through 8. And by doing so, we're going back to look then at the example of Jesus. The passage says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there's a lot that could be pulled out of these verses, but again, true to form and, and with much to cover this morning, I want to kind of jump to two major points that I want to pull out here. And in my mind, these are very necessary outcomes of a truly humble spirit. There's no getting around these. Humility would be false uh, if these were not evident and true. And Jesus fully uh, embodies these. And the first one is that Clearly here, Jesus is fully submitted to the authority of the Father. The verse goes on there. Who, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And Jesus, consistent in his description of his relationship to his Father all through the Gospel accounts, right? Uh, one passage I pulled out among many was John 8, 28 and 29. So when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So the ability to wholeheartedly be under authority, first to God, and in our setting today, then to God's established authority, it's a vital element in posture of humility. I had originally planned, as I was looking towards these two Sundays, to, to speak last week on humility and this week on biblical leadership, something that 
as a church and almost every church needs to grow in their understanding of and and I would just call out this this is a this is a vital element that you as a church as you consider leaders in the future you look for those that can submit themselves to the authority of both God and others it's a deal buster if that's not in place and and I can I can share with you many horror stories of how that works out and what that looks like if you put leaders in place and empower people that, that are not in, in proper submission. Um, so Jesus is our example. Um, stepping it up, one, stepping back, one big step to get clarity of that. Remember when we look at uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, right, comes and incarnates takes on the human form a huge step of humility from one of the Godhead, taking on the limits of human form and thereby submits to the authority of the Father and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, making himself dependent on them and in submission to them. And so in doing so, Jesus becomes our legitimate example. He's a true example to us who share uh, his form. And then second, the other thing to pull out of this this Philippians passage in verse 8, we see that being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what I would suggest to you, that there is no humility without obedience. And Jesus, Jesus demonstrates this, of course, all the way to his crucifixion, right? So as you reflect on those two, you begin to understand some of the deeper heart issues around our issue relative to lordship. You know, if we affirm those three beginnings of humility, the person of God, the role and provision of God, and the receiving of his gift of love and grace in Jesus, you know, we can only respond in humility. And how could that, in turn, fail to transform our priorities? And we're compelled, then, to ask those questions that we asked earlier about God's will and his calling on our life. We want to submit to his loving authority. We know his ways are right. And we ultimately desire to do the things that are pleasing to him, to obey him. So you can see that all those are logical and consistently fit together if in humility has integrity. Ultimately, Jesus is the Lord of our all, right? Even if we don't fully get it yet and recognize that and live that out today, that's a truth. And so how do we move forward from this place in our understanding? And uh, my suggestion to you is is that we go to the Bible. We go to God's word. Because God's been speaking and revealing himself to us for a very long time through his word. Paul Tripp, a really well-known pastor, author, and conference speaker, says, The God who designed you to be a thinker is the same God who inspired the writers of the Old and New Testaments to pen his truths. God hardwired us to view life through an interpretive grid, and he also gave us his word to shape that grid. The Bible is a book filled with doctrine that defines what is good, right, and true. And a loving creator gave it to his dependent creature, us, 
so that they would know how to properly make sense out of life. So we then, if we embrace this reality of God and what he's done to us, done for us through Jesus, we don't move forward haphazardly without thought. We're not operating simply on feelings, but rather we are called to anchor our thinking in the word of God. And you recall, and you've heard this in many forms in different ways, but thinking precedes our actions, right? It's out of our thoughts and our hearts that the actions of our lives come. And so the Bible then becomes our primary truth text. And it's the filter then that we put all other knowledge through to come out with a right understanding of what continued truth looks like. And it's not the other way around. You know, we don't use outside sources to redefine the meaning of the Bible. Rather, we're using God's word to define the outside knowledge. So, the Bible is our source on God's nature, his will, his requirements for us. And then, of course, most fully revealed in the work and the person of Jesus. And again, the word is our most accurate historical record. But there is no alternative. And I, and I really want to drive this home because we're in a culture today and, and I, there's a, I have a great concern because the, there is an, just an ongoing attack against the word of God. Um, but to put it kind of succinctly, if we're to deviate from God's word, and you can do that in lots of ways, you can pick and choose what of the Bible you want to embrace and what you want to leave behind and, and begin to bring your own, own definitions to it and your own will to redefine the text. But as you do that, recognize that you set yourself spiritually adrift on the ocean of the world and its thoughts. The people all around us are floating around aimlessly in their own wisdom. And we see more and more of the outcomes of that. And while in the midst of our sense of being so wise and knowledgeable with so much greater understanding, our suicide rate continues to rise in this country. And I can't think of a more dramatic barometer of hopelessness than suicide. And that in the midst of so much freedom and, and so much greater understanding that we think we have as we set aside and negate God's word. Um, Simply put, there is no redemption to be found in our ways and pride. Rather, God calls us to choose to humbly submit to the authority of his word, empowered and written by the Holy Spirit, right? And that commitment in and of itself is a commitment of submission, right? That's an act of submission to the authority of God, the very thing that humility calls us to be and do. Then likewise, we humbly strive to be obedient to God's word, right? We're not just reading it for knowledge, but we're seeking it for the guidance and the truth that it brings to all of our life, and we're applying it, even when we don't fully get it. We have this act of obedience, of wanting to please the one who has done so much for us. So, you know, as we gather together this morning and I look across uh, at each of you, you know, we would all heartily affirm, I think, those statements. Uh, but it's a real different challenge, my sense, is when we step out of these doors 
into the world around us. And we're not in Kansas anymore, right, Toto? Um, we're not on neutral ground, but rather we've entered a battleground. Uh, the world and its systems out there are under the temporary control of Satan. So there's much more going on than appears at the visible surface of what we can uh, see and touch and feel. But I alert you to this, and, and, and I want to raise this. It's common, you know, as we look across the world, in ignorance, oftentimes you'll hear people attempting to redefine Jesus by separating from biblical truth. That's the only way they can do that. And of course, it's really impossible because biblical, the biblical record is the truth of Jesus. Um, but when we look at that, you know, we find even within Scripture, Jesus fully affirms at, at the time of his beginning ministry on earth, the Old Testament was in place, and we have scriptural references that affirm that Jesus viewed that as God's holy word, uh, right? A couple of passages. Um, Matthew 5, 17 and 20, Jesus declared that um, he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets down to the littlest jot of the pen, not to abolish it. Again, in Luke 24, 44, Jesus, when resurrected form, is appearing to the disciples and he declares to them that everything written in the law, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, everything. And I don't have time to kind of go through and work out and, and build out our theology around um, the truth of God's word. Um, but you get it, and the biblical record shows Jesus as, a, as at the state of the word at that time, fully affirmed that as, as that of God. You know, he goes on even speaking to his half-brothers, um, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that the, its works are evil. So we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus is applying the truth of the word and it results in his crucifixion. But yet that is, of course, the culmination of the Father and the Son and the Spirit's collective redemptive plan, right? But throughout history, the Bible has been under constant attack because of this truth claim and the power that it holds and it can't be pushed down and and destroyed, but uh, even today, but I don't know a lot of details about this, but I understand that the Bible is a regular entry in like the top 10 books that people want to see banned. And that's been a standing place for the Bible for a long time. Because for a lot of people, it's, it's offensive, right? It flies in the face of our contemporary society. It's not a tolerant text. By its very nature and purpose, it seeks to expose our self-centered evil and the sin of mankind before a holy and a just and a loving God who alone defines truth. And why does he give it to us? So that we'll repent and we'll return and humbly receive God's provision for salvation in Jesus alone. That's his loving intent to bring instruction. But rather we would we would rather redefine truth, deny God's word, and in a sense convince us that our sin is normative and it's okay. And so we, we actually nullify the need for Jesus to even come because we're all good, right? 
we got it all together. But yet with this deep hole is still there because people know ultimately that that hole that God alone can fill is still empty. And surely I think that there's some key to our, our suicide rate that's, that ties into that. So my, my both warning and kind of admonition is just this recognition that understand um, what it means to humbly submit and obey the Bible as your truth text for life, as God's word. You're automatically at odds with the world in general. Um, in many cases, you're taking a radically different position because you're a Jesus follower. And yet, it's, it is the right path. And I affirm that. I think you do too. Luke 6, 46 through 48, I love this. Jesus saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood came, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. It was built on the rock of Jesus, right, and his word. So God's word is a place we turn to answer those questions, those humble questions that we have of what is God's nature? What does God think? What does God define as right and wrong? What is my relationship to him and what does he want from me? And I think I can narrow that down further and we can kind of broadly center all those questions on one question that we can kind of tackle and get our arms around and that is what is God's will? Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 Encourage us, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I think you would logically join me in this, that we could say that God's commandments, his clear commandments are expressions of his will, right? I think that's pretty straightforward. So just to step back, and again, in the essence of time here, let's look at the big categories of what God has, has conveyed to us as his will, as the Bible gives it. You know, if we go back to the beginning of Israel as God's chosen people, you know, we come to Deuteronomy 6, 5, the Shema. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Wow, okay, I think that's God's will. Jesus affirms that same overarching command in the Gospels, Luke 10, 27. But what a seemingly huge undertaking. How do we wrap our arms around that? Uh, how do we begin to practice that? But again, we turn to Jesus as our example. John 15, 9 through 13, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So we have our second major commandment, 
to love others like Jesus. You recall he refers to that as a new commandment. What preceded it? The command to love others as yourself. Um, and, and I would submit to you that this is a, a substantial step up as we consider what it looks like to love others like Jesus loves them. But Paul summarizes this too in Galatians 5.13, but through love serve one another for the whole law, all of love, all of God's commands are really fulfilled in one word. You shall love yourself, love your neighbor as yourself. So we could almost say that being obedient to these two commandments would lead us to the full will of God, more than likely if we could really understand the fullness of what that meant. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, the, the classic passage on love describes the nature of what this love looks like, whether our object is God or others, but it's self-sacrificing in nature, right? It's characterized by self-sacrificing patience and kindness and humility, justice, truth, perseverance, faith, and hope. And the question, do we take those passages seriously? Is, is that anything that we attempt to grapple with? Um, but just to continue this kind of journey of understanding, let's just jump out to one of the sweeping passages that can kind of categorize a lot of what we would say is God's will for us, something of an overview, if you will, of what it looks like to be part of uh, the believing community. Which, by the way, in community, is the only way that you can learn to love others like Jesus does. There's no option. There's no alternative. Uh, and so anything that you find in your life that's breaking you away from community is probably working against God's will in your life being lived out uh, and growing in you as he would have. So, Colossians 3, 12 through 17, kind of a big passage here, but put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord's forgiven you. So you also must forgive, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then to add to this, there's, we also have this major command, right, to join God on his mission, our commission with him, right? Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And we, we could continue to go on expanding the details of these broad callings on our lives as Jesus followers. But it begins to clarify when we ask ourselves, what's God's will? He is communicating it, and he's communicated it in detail. And the question becomes, are we grappling with that? Are we engaging? Are we seeking his guidance in the midst of that? But what I've covered so far is sufficient to make the point. Uh, 
And let me begin to make some summary points uh, uh, at this at this point. Um, I hope you see in the whole that God's will for us is contrary to our self-centeredness. It's contrary to our pride. So from a posture of humility, as we rightly seek to submit to God's authority and obey his will for us, we quickly find, and any of those, any of you that have, that have walked with Jesus for any length of time know that we can't do his will on our own. We find very quickly that we're utterly dependent on him to do his will. So we seek him for his help, right? Our active role begins with seeking him through what? Through his word? Through prayer? And I can tell you that that's where the Holy Spirit meets us in those initial steps of faith, humility, expressing itself and submitting to his authority and desiring to be obedient. The Spirit meets us in that place. Those are actions of humility on our part. The Spirit in turn reveals God's truth, but also the conflict that's within us, within our very nature. He shows us the things that needs to change, right? The brokenness that's in every one of us that he wants to heal. The idols of our lives that need to be destroyed that are standing between us and God. Sin that we're protecting and perpetuating that we need to repent from. And all of this is a transformation taking place through the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out, right? We are being recreated into who God originally intended us to do before sin entered in and destroyed so much. And through all of that process, you are experiencing God. The Spirit is working in and through you to accomplish His will. And then if you haven't grasped it yet, so the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring about the will of God in your life. You know, if you just take a moment and compare Paul's summary that we read in Colossians 3 that describes our calling within the community of believers and compare that with the fruit of the Spirit, the beneficial outcomes of the Holy Spirit's work in Galatians 5.22 of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's a virtual overlap, right? What's important to call out here is in none of those passages do you find any mention about our circumstances in life. Rather, the focus is on God's will about our heart and character, right? And yet, about you, but I can speak for myself, I spend so much of my spiritual focus before God um, seeking God to change my circumstances, right? Make this go away, make that stop, make this person be nice to me and make my boss like me and help me earn more money and on and on it goes. Uh, but rather God's using the circumstances in our lives to change our hearts. And often that involves suffering. 
that's a hard one to step up to. All of us suffer. I'm just call that out. Sometimes when we're in the midst of suffering, we can feel isolated, like we're the only ones. But I can assure you that everybody suffers at some point, to different degrees, and at different times, and in different ways. You know, and a central key thought there is that our King, our Savior, suffered in all those ways too. You think about what happened to him relationally with men, but all the way to the suffering of the cross. So we don't serve and follow a king who doesn't know exactly what this life looks like and the challenges that go with this. But scripture, I think, is clear. Um, To those of us that belong to him, God will humble us according to his loving goals. And life challenges are often the means to that end that he uses. But then also, almost all the passages that we've looked at on humility call us to take action. Um, Passages that say, add to, and humility's on the list. Put on, humility's on the list. Or flat out, humble yourselves is the dominant instruction of Scripture. And that, of course, we need the enabling of the Holy Spirit, but there's a step on our part, as opposed to praying for humility, and you certainly can do that. If you're praying, God, humble me, and based on what I've just told you, what is that path going to probably look like? You know, that I call that the two-by-four upside the head, kind of, because... You know, oftentimes if it were clear to me and I understood, then I could repent and I could change and, 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 and move forward. But oftentimes, and, and I, can, I can testify even in the few weeks leading up to the preparation of this message, how many times God painfully and, and, and really in embarrassing ways revealed how proud I am and the areas that I still have so, so far to go and grow in. And so that there is that path, and, the, and probably that's part of, it's going to be part of all of our. But the other side of this is that you can take a proactive approach. You can take serious his words. You can give it the priority that it deserves. And you can grapple with, together, us in community, what does it look like to love one another? What does sacrificial patience look like? And I think that's one of the great callings and objectives that God has for us in this because in my mind that's the reality check when we come into community Uh, it's so easy to drop into a mindset of me and Jesus against the world we have got it together everything is great it's everyone else who screwed up and if they would just get their act together it'd be all everything would be great and of course that's just blind ignorance and um, you know I had shared uh, some my walk in 41 years of marriage with Darlene as of Monday, um, that, you know, I know when she's upset with me, at least at this point, I've, I've learned that there's something about this that's about me, and invariably it's a pride-based issue. And, and so she becomes a great barometer to me to help, uh, that God has used her to help expose the pride in my life. 
And, be, and, and why? Because she's there walking it out with me all the time. She sees with great clarity what I'm blind to. So a point being here is our pride, our self-centeredness can trap us in these vicious cycles of seeking personal glory and personal pleasure. And humility breaks us free of that cycle through the work of the Holy Spirit. Humility then is part of that path to freedom in Christ. Andrew Murray, uh, a contemporary and a friend of A.B. Simpson, the, the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, and, and, and Simpson uh, would do uh, spiritual conferences together where Andrew Murray was one of his speakers. Andrew Murray, a little background, uh, a, uh, a pastor in South Africa who um, found a way to leverage the reduced costs of printing, and he, and he was a prolific writer of small spiritual books that he could give his congregants who were primarily farmers during the farming and the harvest seasons, he could get the word of God into their hands as they're driving their tractors so that uh, he can continue to encourage and speak into their lives. And today there are lots of kind of compendiums, collections of, of Murray's writings, and they're profound, and I would just encourage you. Uh, he, he's probably one of the, the better writers with a deep, deep understanding around this issue of humility. He's, a, he's just a real go-to. But, you know, he says here, as long as we take glory from one another, as long as we seek and love and jealously guard the glory of this life, the honor and the reputation that come from men, we do not seek and cannot receive the glory that comes from God. Pride renders faith impossible. Humility makes the soul fear that it would dishonor him by not trusting him wholly. So as we grow in trust and gain freedom from our sin and the idolatry of the favor of people around us, and we truly live for an audience of one, Jesus, there is great freedom in that place. I want to take a little break here and invite up uh, a new friend of Darlene and mine, uh, Bailey Renner. And um, Bailey has... Um, taken an enormous, courageous step in coming and sharing with us this morning. This is not uh, an easy thing for her to do. Let me get you up. So I, I want you to hear something of her story. It, uh, I think you'll find and you'll quickly and readily see that it fits with the things that we've been talking about. Bailey, would you just give us a little bit of your background? Sure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I grew up in a, uh, a religious home, but uh, not, not a Christian home. Um, and um, and uh, when um, I was uh, in my early 20s, um, uh, let's see, I guess I should go back back. <laughs> I got a little nervous when I came up here. <laughs> um, I know it's a, it's I a scary group, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I graduated from the, from the UW and became a um, high school teacher at the Overlake School here in Redmond. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that school. Um, taught 12th grade English for, for, for quite a while. And really loved that, that job. Um, and then when I was in my um, early 20s, 
um, I was diagnosed with, actually, I was diagnosed with, with something different, but I was eventually diagnosed with um, something called ankylosing spondylitis, or AS, uh, which is something that I would be surprised if anybody in this room has ever heard of, um, but I'll just describe it really briefly. Um, it's it's an incredibly painful condition where your um, spine fuses into a column of solid bone. So you start losing your mobility and your ability to walk and move and bend and twist and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it starts at the bottom of your spine, which is sort of where mine's at now, but eventually it goes up into your neck too. Um, so um, I'll just keep going with the with sort of the story. Yeah, okay. I just you know, I, and part of what I, I asked uh, Bailey to share is is, I mean that's profoundly disruptive to our lives, right? If that were you, and and um, and so to share a little bit of just what that disruptions meant for her. Um. Yeah. So um, when when I started having difficulty with the with the illness. Um, my life really, really completely fell apart. I had to, I had to stop working, um, which was really one of my main identities at the time. I thought of myself as like Bailey, the teacher. You know, if you, if you go to a event where you don't know people, you're introducing yourself. I'd say, oh yes, you know, this is me. I am a teacher. I am also a uh, a parent. I have three stepchildren. Um, and suddenly I, I couldn't do almost all the things that I would do with my children, and that was very, very hurtful to everyone in the family. Sometimes my children understood why I couldn't be with them, why I couldn't do things with them, and sometimes they couldn't, but either way they just knew that I wasn't there, and that was just a terrible thing. Um, so all the things that I sort of knew myself, identified myself as, you know, Bailey the teacher, Bailey the parent, I was also extremely active, you know, hiking, biking, all the things that many of us like to do here in the Northwest, I suddenly couldn't do anymore. So all the things that I identified with, at, you know, as Bailey were gone. And I felt useless and like my purpose was completely gone. I was unmoored and sad and I just, I didn't know what to do. Um, and what I ended up doing is, is I ended up calling my, my dad, <laughs> uh, because my dad is sort of my go-to person. I feel like he's a very godly person and a very wise person. And I, I said, Dad, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm, I'm just totally lost. And and he he gave me a, uh, I haven't told you this part, Craig. <laughs> he he gave me kind of a, a challenge. He said he said, well, how how much time do you spend going to doctor's appointments and uh, thinking about your illness, doing your physical therapy, driving to your doctor's appointments? You know, how much time do you spend on all, all of those things per week? And I thought about that and I said, well, a lot. <laughs> I said, I, I guess it'd probably be about 35 hours a week that I spend, you know, taking care of myself in that way. And he said, well, my suggestion to you would be to spend at least as much time as you do on taking care of yourself physically, um, uh, spend equal or more as much time taking care of yourself spiritually. And I said, 35 hours? I said, how, how am I going to spend 35 hours, you know, on spiritual matters? That seemed 
impossible to me at the time that I could spend 35 hours per week, you know, praying or reading the Bible or, or I didn't know how I was ever going. Plus, I didn't even think I could have the energy. I said, Dad, if I had the energy to do, you know, 35 hours of what I'm doing now plus 35 extra hours of something, I could have a full-time job. <laughs> you know, I could go back to work. So I didn't know if this would work, but I thought it was an interesting challenge. And um, I actually opened up the Bible to Philippians because <laughs> um, it was a sh- nice short book. And I thought, oh, this will be nice and short. This is like an easy place to start. I'll start here. I opened up the book to the Bible to Philippians. And Philippians seemed really interesting to me. It had so many interesting, great things to say. You know, rejoice in the Lord always. I was like, come on. I, I, I don't know. I'm having a really hard time with this, God. I mean, always, right now. I mean, I'm in such pain. And, and um, you know, be anxious for nothing. I was so anxious about the future for my family. Um, I, but I really loved what it was saying. And um, I, I can't say that I really understood it. And so what I ended up doing was going to the beginning of the Bible. I thought, I better start at the beginning because I don't really understand it from the middle. And I ended up reading the whole thing. Um, I mean, 35 hours per week. I ended up spending more sometimes, but that's a lot of time um, for reading and, and reflection and praying. And um, and what I found was was something utterly transformative. Um, what I found was Jesus. Uh, I had never known Jesus before. I sort of knew, you know, baby in the manger story and resurrection story and some miracles in the middle. But the Jesus that I found in the Bible was was someone who was utterly radical in his thought and amazing and loving and saving. And um, I couldn't believe it. Um, it just made me want to drop everything and follow him, you know, like, like some of the people in the Bible did. Um, and... Um, and I, I realized that I had been so incredibly selfish, that I had been living for my glory instead of God's glory. I had been living for all the things that I wanted. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be able to walk and hike. I wanted so many things for my life, but I hadn't been thinking about God and Jesus. And here in the Bible, I found that Jesus was inviting me into his kingdom and his kingdom was something bigger and better and more abundant than anything I could have ever envisioned for myself and I realized that what he was offering me was so much better (laughs) than anything I had ever experienced before Um, and so in that way my life actually became better after after the illness than before the illness, I started living for God's glory instead of my glory. Um, I think also um, just going through a lot of suffering helps me understand other people's suffering, and I think that helps me love people better, which I know is something Jesus wants me to do, and I'm grateful for that experience. So... um, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bailey. We could have brought Bailey up here to begin with, and we could have stopped right there. It would have been great. Uh, 
What I hope you see, though, is not unlike us. All of us have shared something of Bailey's story, but uh, an underlying position, posture of humility, a sense that God exists, he's out there. And many of us maybe have our own version of that story in that how God brings us to some sense of the end of ourselves. Um, and Bailey's has been so profound, but again, a continued posture of humility then to go back to God's word, pour over it, looking for God in it, finding, of course, Jesus. And then, when I heard this, you know, the story, particularly the heart transformation with Bailey, I hope you didn't miss it there, that despite the disease, it's worth it now that she's come to know Jesus. And her right response, and this is what caused her in part to overcome the difficulty and the fear in coming up and sharing before us was just like I'm advocating here, God, what would you have me do? And her heart desire is to, her eyes will sparkle if you get the chance to talk to her. She'll light up with just the hope and the thought of how can I serve Jesus? How can I, how can I love others? This is just right heart response. And so uh, I uh, had hoped to bring Bailey uh, last week uh, to share, but I think this was God's timing. Uh, I'm just going to, uh, for time here, I'm just going to summarize some closing thoughts. We could bring so much more to bear on this issue of our humility. But some things I hope you don't miss. God empowers his agenda. His agenda. His will, his calling on us. You know, we're so, we so want the presence and the manifestation of the Spirit, but often for our own pleasure, our own glory. As if God were some kind of a genie uh, or an entertainer. But the question is, you know, if you'll humble yourself, rightly respond in submission and obedience to God, he will be present to you. He will empower you and use you to his glory. And that experience will continue to draw you closer. That's what Paul was counting on in his if-then question in Philippians 2. Your mission and will and we heard some of this in Bailey's testimony as well, is done in your own strength. Recognize that your will and your individual uh, mission is being done in your own strength. So when we're not in step with the Spirit and on mission with God, we're operating in our own strength. And it doesn't mean that you don't have godly given goals for your life, but it's what the priority of that looks like and who comes first. But... Here's the practical side, and I think this gets to the heart of Paul's challenge to us. If you're not about anything that, that in, requires the power of God to accomplish, you'll have very little transforming experience with the presence 
and the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't need his word, honestly. You don't need to be in prayer. You don't need to receive the power of the Holy Spirit because those are things that you're about that you can do in your own strength. Do you get that? If you're convinced of what those foundations were and your right desire is, Lord, what would you have with me? And you're willing to submit to his authority and act in obedience, it will put you in places that you cannot fulfill in your own strength. You can't love others like Jesus. It's not in you. You can't be fully on mission with him without him. And if you're committed to that, and that's a priority in your life, you will be in his word. You can't help but not be in his word. The challenge is that great. You will be on your knees in prayer. You can't live life without him in the center and not be in active relationship with him every day at the highest priority of your life. There is great power in humility. We tend to think of meekness and, if anything, though, from a worldly view, a lack of power. But there couldn't be more power than humility. Because humility places you in the center of God's will. What better place is there to be? And what will God empower other than his will in your life? There's no more powerful place to be in than in that humble position with God. And then lastly, just to reinforce again, humility is a choice. It's the same and it's true of sacrificial love as well. I think our prayerful challenge sometimes is, Lord, what does humility look like? In this context, how do I rightly respond in humility? More often than not, I think we know. Um, but it requires great trust on our part. Because it'll put us in positions where it will appear that we've lost all power and influence to humble ourselves and submit to authority. And often then, the, the bottom line is that oftentimes our big challenge ultimately is do we trust God for this aspect of our life, and then are we willing to submit that? And that's the transformative work that the Holy Spirit's about in our lives. He is building our ability to trust. And God's not ignorant of where we're at and how we've gotten to this place. And he is the embodiment of love, right? He is sacrificially patient, compassionate. Jesus demonstrated great humility. So just as a final question, has the Spirit been speaking to you today? Is there some place that he's brought in your sense of, of thinking in your heart, a place to humble yourself? Is it maybe time to take his will and his ways seriously, to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about those things in your life? But what's the specific next things that he's calling you to be about. I have Samuel and, and uh, Holly come back up and 
lead us in a closing set in worship. Um, at this time, we look at this as our, our, our response time. Uh, we'll be taking uh, an offering. And if you're visiting with us today, don't feel compelled to give. That's not the point. We have a, a faithful community here. But if you're feeling led to give, then give, by all means. Uh, communion is available both in the front and the back. Uh, this is a step of humility. Jesus asks us to examine our hearts as we reflect on the great price that he has paid and our comp- contribution to the need for that. And then lastly, as Holly and Samuel lead us so well in worship, worship is an act of humility too. To let go of your sense of personal presence and reputation and wholeheartedly uh, worship God. So, invite you to come as you feel led, um, and then we'll, we'll have one last closing thought. Despite all of the challenges of his circumstances, he, keep, he kept coming back to the faithfulness and the steadfast love of God. And it's the same calling on us today, only we know the big story. We know God's redemptive story. The king that we serve, the, the Jesus that we follow, has given his all in order to redeem us and bring us into his family. That's who we serve and who we follow. If you're hearing any kind of condemning voice, that's not of him. He, he knows who you are and where you're at, and he wants to just draw you closer to himself and reveal how much he loves you and how right his ways are for you if you will come with him, humble yourself. So go in peace, go in the love of the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as you go today. Have a great day. Thanks for coming.